And every once in a while, it'll really, really hit me. Oh my goodness, I remember. I really, really remember how it was and how I felt. The Your Life Sucks podcast, destigmatizing mental health through discussion. Hi all, welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're having super days in September. It's July now, but I'm feeling like I want to be productive, so I'm making a bunch of episodes for season two. Just to catch you up on what's going on in my life, my internship, a week in, 10 days in, is so, so incredible. The people that I'm working with are so bright, funny, creative, and just out-of-the-box thinkers, and it's really, really inspiring to just be in meetings and hear great ideas being hashed out. My virtual lab started yesterday, Thursday, July 1st, and I think it's going to be interesting, but like Zoom, you know? So we'll have to wait a couple days to make any conclusions about that. Today, our guest is Alexis Smith. She is a writer, a mental health advocate, she has her own podcast, and she's an eating disorder survivor and speaker. She's going to be speaking to us about her eating disorder and how she recovered from it, and how she used her newfound strength to make a difference in the mental health scene. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Let's get to it. Hi, Lexi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of course. I am really, really good. And it's the weekend. So, and it's July 4th weekend. So it's a long weekend. I don't have lab on Monday. So I'm excited about that. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, just for starters, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first of all, I, um, I'm a psychology student. I'm at Utah Valley University studying psych. Um, and eventually I'll study clinical mental health counseling. So that's what I love to do. And I'll specialize in eating disorder treatment. Love that. Um, I love yoga. I play piano. I love spending time with my friends and my family. Um, so that's kind of me. But great, great. I think this is the first podcast episode where as a, we're hearing a story, but the speaker is not, you know, in high school. So or or in middle school. So this is very interesting, a new perspective. I'm very excited. So let's get into that story. Tell us when your eating disorder symptoms began, or or the pre the, the lead to that. Yeah, so I guess we'll start way back when. Growing up, I was always very perfectionistic, like academically. Um, I was super athletic. And as I started to transition into seventh grade, I just started to develop even more perfectionism, a lot of envy towards my peers, um, and some some depression, some clinical depression, even though I wasn't aware of it at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and life kind of went on slowly but surely around ninth grade. I um, made a goal to just be healthier. This What's, was what, what sparked that goal? Honestly, I'm not 100% sure. I had finished some health classes in eighth grade and mm -hmm. um, I was excited about it. I was eager for health. I had a Fitbit at the time. I had asked for one for Christmas. I had had it for a few years. I just wanted to be healthy and I wanted to, I don't know, just get ahead of it and be on top of it. And Got it. I um, like so goal. I think, yeah, I think it was a very reasonable goal. It was, it was rational and mm -hmm. um, healthy, but it, it was really just a broad goal of being healthier. And I was going to do that by eating better and exercising more. And um, slowly but surely, things started to spiral out of control. I became obsessed with tracking all about calories, all about macros, recording my numbers um, and foods, exercising obsessively, compulsive exercising, just these things that just really got obsessive and, and what we call orthorexia um, now. Um, and then mm -hmm. in a it's a very orthorexia is a very new phenomenon. You know, you before it was just anorexia bulimia. Do you want to go into right. what orthorexia is? Yeah, so for sure. I It's not in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So you can't be officially diagnosed with orthorexia. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, I would say that orthorexia is kind of, it's very similar to like anorexia in a way, but more focused on health. 
So um, the way I see it is oftentimes the anorexia is a lot more qualitative, um, especially in regards to food, body image, things like that. And then orthorexia is a lot more quantitative, focused on weight, calories, um, Mm -hmm. in that kind of regard. The obsession with eating only clean and pure foods and ranking foods based on how healthy they are. Right. So that's usually why we talk about like the wellness diet or diet culture, um, things like that can can really just slip into orthorexic tendencies. And um, I think it's it's a little bit in the gray area of health and eating disorder. And that's what we call orthorexia. And it's becoming, unfortunately, more and more common. And I think providing the awareness on it is very helpful. Um, but I do think there are some differences. But for me, at least, the treatment was was basically the same. And um, mm-hmm. um, I was... So a- when did it get so bad that you needed it? Or did you seek treatment? Tell me, Tell me about that. Yeah. So I went to my parents and I kind of was like, hey, this is... And it it was it was very subtle. It was kind of my cry for help. I was like, "Hey, things aren't going on with my body that should be going on. I, you know, the things I'm not feeling right. This isn't, you know, whatever." And mm-hmm. um, my mom was like, "Okay, well, let's wait a little while. Um, see what happens. If things don't work themselves out, we'll we'll go see a doctor." So we did. We waited a little while, and I was like, "Okay, you know." So um, and then they started to catch on and they asked me, they're like, Lexi, are we dealing with a potential eating disorder? And I just nodded my head. Yes. And, and cried. And we had an appointment with my doctor and I knew what they were going to tell me. And I, I expected them to give me like some worksheets, a food pyramid, you know, come home, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, whatever. Um, that's not what happened. I was diagnosed there from my pediatrician with anorexia officially. And that was October of 2017. Um, I would have been a sophomore in high school at the time. I was admitted to Primary Children's Hospital in Mm -hmm. um, Salt Lake City, Utah. And so I spent the following six days there and they gave me an NG feeding tube, um, which just went down my throat and into my stomach and it just provided me additional nutrition. So I had the feeding tube. And then on top of that, I also like ate food regularly through um, Mm -hmm. through a meal plan. I had a dietitian, a specialized dietitian, a specialized eating disorder therapist, um, when I was discharged from the hospital, after those six days, I, st- I went home with my feeding tube and I had my feeding tube for the following four months. Right. And you um, went to school during those four months. Yes, I did. I went to school. I went everywhere. Um, so everywhere I went, get... my feeding tube came with me. So Right. So did you get any comments? Did your friends, you know, try to talk to you about it? I did. I So my closest group of friends, I told after about a week of being home. So about two weeks after being diagnosed. I sent a text to like a mass text to like my closest friends in high school and said, Mm -hmm. hey, I know you guys are like, where the heck are you? Um, This is what's been going on. I've been diagnosed with anorexia. I'm not sure when I'll be back to school, but hopefully soon, blah, 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 blah. They were super, super supportive. So my closest friends knew. My peers just at school, students that sat next to me in classes, things like that. People did ask me. They looked at me weird. Like, what in the world? is that girl doing? Like, Mm -hmm. what's wrong? You know, just curious, I think. Not like they were being super judgmental, but just like, oh, that's different, you know? Right. I wonder wonder what's going on. Um, And people would ask me, they'd be like, oh my gosh, Lexi, what happened? Um, And I always had this little thing like memorized of what I would say to people. Oh, you Mm -hmm. know, I've had some medical things going on and this is just a, a feeding tube that provides me with some extra nutrition right now as I as I get better um and they were always content with that answer and they're like right, okay right. and then they just carry on um and then slowly but surely I think everyone over 
over time and especially now as I do advocacy, you're like, oh, okay, that's what was going on. But it was really difficult, especially at first, to meet new people with a feeding tube or to walk down right. the hallways with a school of 2,000 kids, um, just or to, to attend any events to and to take pictures on Christmas morning, you know. I was mm-hmm. like, are these going to be in the scrapbook eventually? Are these going to get posted? I don't know. Um, just super, super difficult. And And as I look back on my recovery, I don't talk about my feeding tube as something that is scary or um, horrible, a part of recovery, but it was, it was not easy for sure. Um, yeah. Recovery wasn't easy, but it was definitely necessary for me. And not everyone has that same experience. Not everyone has a feeding tube. That's not necessarily what's right for everyone. But for me, um, as much as I disliked it at the time, it was, it was very um, crucial to my recovery and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. So let's talk about your other parts of your recovery. Tell us about Yeah, so so I did go to therapy every week. I met with a dietitian um, about every two weeks. And um, I kind of just trucked my way through recovery, talking about orthorexia, uncovering um, fear foods and stigmas around mental health. And then every eating disorder kind of has something underlying it. So for me, yes. it took a long time to figure out what that was because I was like, nothing major has happened in my life. I don't know what could be the real root cause of this. Um, but for me, that kind of ended up being a lot of perfectionism and a lot mm-hmm. of clinical depression. So getting my mind back to a healthy place, getting me to weight maintenance, getting my mind not so it wasn't malnourished anymore, getting on some medication because that was right for me um, helped with that. And then understanding perfectionism, finding different coping mechanisms things that I can control in different ways so that was more healthy, creating um, appropriate boundaries and things like that. Um, some tools that they gave me that were that were critical to my recovery and and so that I would never relapse with my eating disorder. So Right. So do you want to tell us about some of your coping mechanisms if you're comfortable? Of course. So I think with perfectionism especially, well, I guess I'll start with depression. Depression um, so hard. It's just so, so, so hard. Mm -hmm. And I think I oftentimes mention that there's a, there's such a difference between being bummed one day and having a a bad day and being clinically depressed. Because when you, when you're having a bad day, you know, sometimes you, you lift up your chin, you square your shoulders and you keep on trucking. Um, but there's other times like when you're experiencing clinical depression that you need extra care, you need medication, you need someone to be with you, you need therapy, you need whatever might be right for you. And and so leaning into that, I think, is so important and recognizing that and asking for help and removing the stigma um, from that is is so critical. And then with perfectionism, Mm -hmm. I think for me, one of the things that I had to do, (laughs) this is super and it's you, you would never think that this is a big deal, but I had to purposefully leave things in purpose imperfect for a long time I had to one of my one of my challenges was to not make my bed for a week Mm -hmm. um so that was one thing that that I did totally bothersome yeah yeah so just great exposure therapy (laughs) yes yes basically just um exposure therapy like that and um you know what if I wrote something down at school I I would try not to erase it and fix my handwriting or you know there's a difference between being organized and being like obsessive about it so a little I mean I've never been diagnosed with OCD but a little bit of those same same um, characteristics almost were there as well and then as well as not just like orderliness but um, being perfect on grades and test scores and 
um, nutrition and all of that kind of stuff. And so practicing imperfection was a challenge for me. And then I also developed other coping skills. I learned that if the fastest way to calm me down is to put me in a shower, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is super funny. But yeah, if I take a shower, I'm immediately calm. If I do yoga, I that really helps me. Listening to music, taking a drive, reading books, being with people, asking for help. Those are some of my key tools that are kind of in my toolbox that I know that those really, really work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, How did you find out that going in a shower helps you? You know, I don't know. I guess it's just one of those things is like you shower enough that like, right, right, right. you know, when you're stressed before you're like, oh, hey, this is actually, (laughs) this actually helps, you know, so Mm -hmm. maybe I should just go, (laughs) even if I don't need a shower, maybe I should go take a shower, you know, or fill up the bubble bath or whatever it might be. I don't know. That just seems to help me um, just calm down and focus. I think it just slows down my body and my brain. And um, that's just helpful for me. And so yoga is another one of my, my top favorites. So finding those things. And I mean, some people have coping skills that are completely different. Maybe they like to read or like to go for walks, which I like to do um, or whatever. And it's just a a variety of different things that, that you can kind of have at your fingertips if you need to. And so those are the things that I started to to figure out in my recovery. I eventually got into advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, because right. How did you get into that? I, I mean, a lot of people with eating disorders just move on with their lives. It's just a thing of the past, which is fine. I mean, that's that's what recovery is for is so that you don't have to you don't have to think about it every day. But for me, I knew that it just it just hit really home to me. And I was always very interested in the social sciences as is. Mental health was always very interesting to me, psychology. So it just kind of sealed the deal that I would go into eating disorder treatment. And Mm -hmm. so I got into a lot of advocacy on social media, legislative advocacy, working towards getting like eating disorder awareness in health classes and things like that through education, podcasting, motivational speaking, writing workbooks, publishing them, whatever. And I have honestly, my life is as consumed with advocacy as it once was with an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be more happy. That's a great statement. I couldn't be more happy. I love doing the work that I'm doing and it means a lot to me reaching out to individuals that are once where I was. And I often say that my tears have changed. It's kind of, it's very interesting that my, my pillow used to be wet every night with tears um, as I was in recovery, as I had a feeding tube up my nose, connected to a pole, getting that, that nourishment that I needed, being mm-hmm. checked out of school all the time to go to therapy. And now when I go to bed at night, my tears have changed. And instead of weeping over the things that I'm going through, I think of those individuals who are in the shoes that I once was. And every once in a while, it'll really, really hit me. Oh my goodness, I remember. I really, really remember how it was and how I felt. And I, I cry for them and I pray for them and, and their recovery and watching individuals go through this process and then eventually reaching out to me and saying, hey, Lexi, I'm really struggling. And I'm able to connect them with resources and whatever and provide them with that. And then seeing them come back and ask me, Lexi, how do I get into advocacy? That is the most fulfilling thing um, I think I've ever witnessed. And I'm so grateful that I've been able to use something that I went through for good. Um, I often say that I didn't go through what I did for for nothing. I might as well use my story and I might as well do what I can. And um, so I take that and I use that to my advantage. I love that. I really, really love that. And thank you for sharing your story and what you do. So what is your day-to-day life like right now? So typically, I I am involved in a lot of work, school, 
Um, I graduated high school last year, so in 2020, mm-hmm. and um, I graduated with my associate's degree from Weber State University. Mm-hmm. How did you do that in high school? So I did that with a combination of CE classes, AP classes, early college, all of that while I was in treatment um, for an eating disorder. Well, I well my treatment for my eating disorder took place mainly my sophomore year and then mm-hmm. lingered a little bit into my junior year. Um, but then my junior and senior year is when I really, really started to to buckle down and and focus on my academics. And I knew that I had that goal of graduating with my associate's degree since like the eighth grade. And mm-hmm. so that was a big motivator for me in my recovery was, okay, if I if I don't get recovered, I'm not going to be able to meet this goal because I'm going to have to be in a treatment facility. I'm going to have to be doing all of this recovery. And so that was a big motivation for me to, to get through recovery. But mm-hmm. I did graduate from high school last year with my associates from Weber State University. And um, I now attend Utah Valley University. Mm-hmm. And like I said, studying psychology, I, I honestly just lead a very typical college life. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't worry about my eating disorder. I never, I don't wake up in the morning and have any trace of it that's left. I'm just an average, you know, average human that, that focuses on family and friends and relationships and work mm-hmm. and school. Um, and it's lovely. It's absolutely wonderful. And and so that's so hopeful for hopefully listeners that are maybe going through something similar, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be a certified therapist at, at what age? Um, let's see. So I'll graduate. I'll graduate with my psych, my bachelor's in psychology right before I turn 20. Wow. And then hopefully I'll start the CMHC program, which is clinical mental health counseling that coming fall. So I'll hopefully graduate from that right before I turn 22. Mm -hmm. And then you'll be free to practice. Yes. So I should be like, they might take another year to be like officially licensed. So around Mm -hmm. 22, 23 ish. Mm -hmm. That is way earlier than, than the norm. That is, you're really taking a nonstop path. I have to ask you, do you think that your nonstop path is for everyone? No, it's definitely not. And um, I don't know if I'd recommend getting your associates in high school, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it worked out because I knew what I wanted to do and I hit the ground running in college. But mm-hmm. if you don't, it's kind of brutal. And um, high school is definitely the time to explore different fields. And because I was so involved in early college classes, I didn't always have the opportunity to take classes just to see what they were like. Right. Um, I even think that that college is even the right time to try out a million things, especially because, you know, there's so many different courses offered. But, right. Uh, yeah. Right. And I'm, I'm, I've considered, especially now, I did want to just, I had, uh, I obviously graduated in the spring from high school and then I took a summer off, mm-hmm. went to college. I'm not doing summer school, so I've got my summers. Um, but then I was considering taking a semester, even a year off, maybe doing a study abroad between my bachelor's and my master's degree. But the mm-hmm. way that the program works out and the how the cohorts start and everything, it looks like I'm just going to keep on going. But um, I think what's important is I've been able to find a lot of balance in academics and everyday life, um, which is insane. But like my college, mm-hmm. college experience now is so much easier for me mm-hmm. than it was back in like seventh or eighth grade, even 10th grade when mm-hmm. I was super perfectionistic about things and super just not in a good mindset and didn't have the coping mechanism that I did, didn't take time for myself, wasn't kind to my mind. So I think now I'm really able to take a step back and to take it at more of a regular pace and to enjoy it a little bit better. 
Mm -hmm. Um, but no, I don't think you don't need to get through college so fast. Um, because why there's no point, there's no point. You really, you don't need to, um, yeah, there is no race. Um, for me, it just, it just happened to work out. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, who knows? We'll see. Maybe you're, you're doing okay. Right. Right. I'm just cruising right now, but I mean, maybe in three years from now, I'll be like, yeah, that's never going to happen. It's going to take me way longer than I once (laughs) thought. (laughs) And that might be the case because you never know. It might take me a year or two longer than I expect, but Right. Um, you know, we'll see what happens. So, right, right. Well, Lexi, best of luck to you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, follow Lexi at Every Ounce of Strength on Instagram to see all of her work and subscribe to the Every Ounce podcast available everywhere. We'll see you next time, guys.